Jeff's a little off, you know? I think he's kind of hilarious. I like bones. It interests me. What's inside? I see things in you that I don't like about myself. I want you to have friends in ways that I never could. I'm just like anybody else. This is not a sideshow attraction. Are you okay? Get out of your shell. You need to be more normal. I now present to you Jeffrey Dahmer in his command performance. Welcome to episode 40 of the Monday Morning Critic. Today we have director, writer, Mark Myers. Mark has just put out, or this Friday I should say, put out a movie called My Friend Dahmer. I've seen it. I like this movie a lot. Mark, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. This is this is wonderful. So I have to tell you, I was in Georgia this past weekend, and I live in Massachusetts, so I spent five minutes talking to a friend of yours, um, the wonderful Dallas Roberts, and I said, Dallas, I've seen this movie. I cannot stop thinking about this. I think about this movie every day. He goes, man, that movie is a trip. He goes, tell Mark I said hello, so I, I have to pass that on before I forget. Oh, that's great to know. I've been uh, texting with him once in a while, and it's, uh, to be honest, ever since we started casting, I, I wanted Dallas to play Lionel Dahmer, the father. I just am so grateful he's part of the movie. You know, I got to say, Mark, in, in, in many ways, in just talking about um, Dallas, he's a very underappreciated actor. I think when people see him on screen, they love him, but he was so good in this. Like, I, And I'm not just saying this because I'm speaking with you. I really felt that it's almost Oscar-worthy how good he was. That's nice. Thank you. I'll let him know, too. Um, yeah, it just felt like the right choice to have him. And, uh, you know, from certain things I had seen of his work prior that was very different. And then we met and hit it off. We had a beer. And uh, a year later, you know, we finally circled back and was like, can you show up? <laughs> to do some scenes and be Lionel Dahmer in about a couple of weeks, and he was he was there. He was game. Um, he really just I think just gives it gives his role a lot of soul. Oh, he is he's amazing, and not to leave and the 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 supremely talented Anne Hayes out of the picture either. She was so good as well. Yeah, I I mean that that was a trip working with her. I I adore her, and um, you know she's just. She's just such full of energy and such a thoroughbred pro actor, just like Dallas. And they've been around the block so, for so long that it was really interesting to watch their process. And um, they loved, you know, working with Ross on the whole thing. And um, it was fun. They they came they came by set close to the end because we filmed at Jeffrey Dahmer's actual childhood home. Mm. And so that was all scheduled close to the end of production. And so once after working with a lot of the kids for uh, many weeks, when we finally got to the house. There they were, ready to roll. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I do know that it comes from, and I'll get to this down in a bit, it comes from a graphic novel, but how tough is it for you, Mark, to do both direct and write? Because you do have to, I mean, you can't just take the graphic novel and put it out there. I mean, you do a lot on that end as well. H how much more of a load is it to do both of those things for you personally? Well, so far... That's been it's my fourth feature. So for all of them, I've done the same thing. Right. And I just don't know anything else but to start 
as a writer. And then once you're happy with the script, you just get sort of emotionally attached to it in a way where you're just convinced that you've got to will it to being, and then you start working towards actually having it happen. And this, you know, was a wild journey to get this story made, but um, the two for me are kind of just kind of connected as one. It was the first time I ever really adapted some other source material from another medium, like a graphic novel, right. into a film, so that had its own challenges. Yeah, and it's an indie movie, but it's an indie movie that plays big. Like, it's shot beautifully. You, you capture the 70s without being, you know, over the top. It's just uh, cinematically and the cinematography plays really well. It, it looks beautiful, Mark, from the way it's shot. Thank you. I mean, very fortunate that, you know, when you have an independent film, you got to be resourceful. And so... We were very fortunate to have a great equipment and a great camera with great lenses. And that might be a too technical of a conversation for some, but it matters a lot. And so I was having a great, you know, a great dedicated crew around us. And so I had done a lot of preparation before filming with meticulous storyboards and had thought about it a lot. So when I got to set, I was able to already know kind of what I was going for. There's always surprises, but I was able to have the, the dolly, the steady cam, beautiful lenses, all these sort of things that just, and amazing production design to bring it back to 1977, 78. And all, all of that detail came together and it was it was great to just thrust myself back into the seventies. Yeah, and, and and there's a lot of things I like about this movie, and one of them is the perspective from which you tackle it. You know, and it's it's a it's a serial it's a movie about a serial killer, but it's not the perspective is not like so like say by comparison, Silence of the Lambs or you know a hack 'em up horror movie. I don't even think one person dies in the movie, to be honest with you, but. It's just the perspective is so neat. It, the movie lives in this little place, just not being judgmental, just here it's, it, it is what it is, and, and, and here it's for you to see. I, I love that you did that. Thank you. I mean, the movies that stick with me over time are the ones that I, you know, you just keep thinking about and, and realizing there's multiple dimensions to the humanity around the characters, no matter who they are that's portrayed. And so... I, the book itself is a very honest um, first-person account of, of, of Durf Bacter's actual friendship with Jeff and the experience him and his friends had growing up with Jeff Dahmer in, in high school. And so the tone there was so honest and matter-of-fact that it was a great starting-off point. And, and so it just felt like that was, I was meant to sort of continue to do the same thing. Um, just... You know, not really cast blame. I'm not. I'm a storyteller. I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'm not going to mm. give a diagnosis of Jeff. But I'm going to show everyone. The intention was to show everyone the sort of forces swirling around, both in uh, the character Jeff Dahmer's, you know, personal life in his head, but also just the, sort of the forces around him that are working not in his favor. His parents' marriage is dissolving. Teenagers. You know, can be cruel at times, and 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 there in the center of that is a kid who's very, very fragile and misunderstood and highly disturbed. So you're sort of watching a monster just take shape. And that's where the movie really shines, Mark. And it's a big credit to you. And I should mention, and I, I'm, I'm sorry I waited this long. This is from uh, Dur uh, Dirk uh, Backdurf's um, graphic novel under the same name, My Friend Dahmer. Um, and I did want to say, I've been thinking about this movie every day since I've seen it, Mark, 
And I wonder, you know, would things have, if we compare the 70s to 2017, would things have been the same? I think about things like, you know, Dahmer's sexuality. I think about how it's more accepting now and how times have changed a little bit. And maybe he wouldn't have slipped through the cracks. And I do have strong opinions about his friends, which I'll get to in a second. And at the end of the day, and it's taken me a long time to kind of just, I, I think and think and think. I, I just think this guy was wired to be this way. I don't think, I think we live in a better time, a more accepting time. But I think what happened would have still happened regardless. Do you agree or disagree with that? I pretty much agree. I mean, it's a cautionary tale, right? So right. you're looking back at a, 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 a person who slipped through the cracks, as you say, the doors that could have helped him close the doors that opened up and allowed his ghastly urges, his weird proclivities and, and, and all of that monstrous activity, those doors started to open up for him in high school. And so he slipped through the cracks and, and people, you know, just around him didn't, may, may not have seen the signs, but also didn't necessarily know what to do. Mm. Um, so I agree with you that I always believe he is, he's miswired, you know, totally wired wrong, but he also was in an environment that didn't, you know, catch it. Um, unfortunately, he's not the first and he's not the last. So, you know, this is a cautionary tale in the way that uh, there's often, uh, unfortunately, teenagers that are misunderstood and uh, act out in very harmful, hurtful ways to other people. And the story, in a way, is trying to glamorize him or, or you know, I'm not concerned with, I'm not trying to in any way excuse what he did later in his life. I'm just showing them the making of the monster. Hmm. Um, but I also, you know, as you talk about the time period, you know, I, it, there's a clear difference between now and then. There was, it was before even cable news. It's before the internet. Hmm. Kids lived without helicopter parents. So we were just, you know, they almost lived like uh, wild dogs where you could drop off your, your books after you got off the school bus, walk out the back door, cut through the woods, and maybe come home in time for dinner. But you, you know, your parents might not know where you were for a number of hours, right. and that's just what life was like. So it was a very, very local life at that point. So there wasn't really the resources or the um, the kind of communities that one could find a, to sort of look for help. So he was just left with his thoughts that were, you know horrible and very demented and uh, sexuality that he couldn't figure out. Um, but it was a different time. And yeah. so I knew in making the movie that we'd be watching it through our modern lens. So I felt like if I could just present like a time capsule of the seventies, you can, you can put on to it this wisdom of how far we've also progressed on some level since then. Yeah, that's really well said, Mark. And and I have to say, I, I I process things a little bit differently. This movie, not as far as the the content, but as far as the overall picture, reminded me a lot of it. I don't know if you saw it. Did you see uh, the the movie that came out? Um, the Stephen King's. Well, uh, hey, throw me in the same group with a, a hit movie like it any any day if you want. <laughs> um, I. I've been so busy with this film and traveling a bunch that I think I was even abroad at a film festival when it came out. And ever since then, I've been home quite busy with this movie. So I'm going to get to it, I think, after our movie opens on Friday. So, um, which I'm not sure when this is going to air originally, but, you know, never, tomorrow, November 3rd, is the first day this is going to be in theatrical release in New York and L.A. Yep. I, I'll be able to maybe dust myself off and catch up on some other movies i'm looking forward to yeah. <laughs> thereafter <laughs> and, I, and i could definitely see because you've definitely been 
busting your butt here the last, you know, uh, months, I should say. And it reminds me of It in this regard, and I'm not ruining anything here. In the movie It, the adults let the kids down in the town. They, They let them down. And what saves the movie are the kids getting each other's backs, the kids supporting each other. And I felt like the adults in this movie let Dahmer down. Not that it would have changed what happened, but I, I there's one little thing I just can't... I feel like the friends, including Durf, are closer to being mean girls than they are stand-by-me friends. Like, I, I just... There was just something that was very Completely. E- very yeah. evil about these kids. I, I didn't sense that they were friends. I almost sensed that they were like a puppet master working a puppet. Well, that's easy for us to look at because it's true, but they also at the same time were unaware that they were being that way, and that's kind of the point too. Mm. You know, when when you're conscious of those things, it's unforgivable. When you're unaware of really how you're treating another teenager, which is kind of how kids are, it, it, it's a little bit it's a little bit different. Where I think somehow in Mean Girls, they're they're explicitly and on purpose mean, and here these kids are just unaware of almost the cruelty they and other teenagers place on each other and that there's a little bit difference in there but you know then you have stand by me on the other hand and we made a choice to not have a movie with voiceover so i could live in the 78 77 you know world right um and voiceover would have sort of been about us looking back at that era and that would have added a little level of sentimentality to the film and that also i just felt like would have gotten in the way of of giving the audience like the creepy factor that we would experience by, you know, witnessing these kids, but at the same time would get in the way of us sort of being caught up in their just everyday lives as teenagers in the seventies. So I just wanted to keep something that was like almost like a time capsule of that moment in time. So you could understand that they were also unaware of really what they were, how they might've been harming him um, or been insensitive to him or oblivious to what he was going through, um, you know, at, at that moment. Yeah, and, you know, Durf, at, at, during, because I was, when I was researching some of your other interviews, I, he said, you know, 80% of what you what you put on film was accurate, you know. And I wonder, did some of that include, you know, they paid him money at the end to kind of do his, his like, seizure, where he kind of just f- tenses up and makes noises? I wonder if it included... Yeah. Yeah, so... I, that- that happened. I mean, that 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 they then at that moment in time, in actuality, called it the command performance. And Durf and his original like own, you know, illustrated diaries from high school. At that point, they had called it just command performance. But it's at that moment as it's chronicled in the book as well as in the movie. It was the it was the sort of turning point for Durf where he realizes, oh, this has gone too far. Mm. You know, it was like they didn't realize really what they were giving him, you know, beer money to go spaz out in a public mall. And it just it pushed him. It just took him too far. Yeah. And and I just didn't know what to make of the pictures he was drawing. I I just I don't know. I, I definitely see what you're saying. And I totally believe that, you know, they when they probably didn't realize they definitely didn't realize what he was going to become. But, you know, just even the pictures, it was just a very, you did a marvelous job of it. Just, I'm talking about the story itself. It was just, I've just never seen anything like it. You know, it's just so, I don't know, it's hard to kind of wrap your mind around all that. Right. I mean, that's that's the thing that's like, 
so shocking about it is that this is based on real events. Mm. But, you know, I've been fortunate enough to share it at lots of film festivals, both here and abroad, and that's been great for me. And, and e- even in other countries, as well as here, I've met people who have said that they did, they remember doing similar things in their high school, mm. um, just in the way that they might have treated someone or been treated by kids um, uh, more cruelly than you know either side was aware of and that they did other stunts. I've met a bunch of people that have did the same yearbook stunt as Jeff and his friends did, where they sort of photobombed yearbook club photos and put one of the buddies in it that wasn't in the club. Right. So it's, some of these anecdotes are not um, only unique to him, but it re- almost frighteningly reminds you of how familiar some of the things they did are to so many of us, which then I figured there's something else at play uh, beyond being a teenage numbskull <laughs> that helped, you know, contribute to what Jeff, you know, how he slipped off and lost his humanity. That he, there was something else within him that obviously was far more powerful and 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 dark. Yeah, and I'd but love that, to. See, I'd love to see you do. I mean, one or two more of these because there's so much more story here, and obviously you're supremely capable at taking. It would be kind of cool here to. To develop something that is, you know, you're onto something pretty special here. Um, granted, the topic is morbid, but it's pretty special, Mark. What you've done here. Thanks. I mean, you know, also like we haven't cha- we haven't chatted about this uh, that much, but there's, you know, I'm not sure how you honestly viewed it yourself through as often as with, uh, you know, people that are in the press, they might watch it in an advanced screener with or without an audience, but there's a lot of humor in it too, because at the same time it is a high school movie and in, in the fact that it's set in high school and high school kids do and say stupid things. And that's, that's been, um, that's been almost one of the sort of more shocking things I think to the audience is that they sort of forget that Jeff is going to become Jeffrey and that the movie's funny as well. Yes. Um, in an awkward way, especially yes. in the first half. It does have that dark comedy appeal to it, absolutely. Um, so you have somebody really special here in Ross Lynch, and I cannot get I cannot comprehend how you go from the Disney Channel and go <laughs> from Disney to Dahmer. And what's weird, even more weird, Mark, is that Zach Efron is playing Ted Bundy. So I'm starting to believe Disney's a factory for actors who want to portray serial killers. But I, I gotta tell you, he's a really special kid. Uh, Ross is. He is. I mean, I, I just, you know, two minutes after we got on, on the phone together, um, we, we were just, we just spent the whole day together doing some other press and stuff in New York and he's about to head back to LA tonight. So we just, you know, had a high five and a hug and, and he's off and he's just the classiest guy. He's enormously talented. He's mm-hmm. both a, a dancer and a singer and obviously an actor. And, you know, some people may look at the Disney from Dahmer as if it's somewhat of a stunt, and it's also a headline, and it's fascinating people, but I was really just honestly looking for the best actor to carry the film, and I found all of that in, in him. Um, he auditioned just like everybody else, and we got to hang out for an hour or two in a rehearsal space at one point when he circled back and was available, and we got to mess around with the material, and I could just see how versatile he was as an artist, and and... The fact that he has so much physical likeness to the real Jeff in high school is also <laughs> was, adds to how creepy and haunting it all is. Yeah, I couldn't find a good way to say that. I didn't want to say he looked like Dahmer, but he does have a a, a similarity. I didn't want to say that. He's a, he's a good-looking kid. I don't want to say he looks like Jeff Dahmer, but 
he definitely pulls. But that's also that's also part of it. I mean, he you know the original the real guy was handsome. I think to be a serial killer, I, I thought about this a lot. You have to really have the sort of a cunning, clever power of persuasion that can seduce someone else into luring them to wherever you may go. And part of the movie is sort of showing that the seeds of that that sort of charm are also taking shape even though he's highly uncomfortable in his own body as a human being. So there's just a lot of shit going on for this character that I think Ross really brings all of it out. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about a few scenes here, Mark. Um, sure. Why, why was it important to show um, Dahmer not killing the dog and letting the dog go? Why, why was that important? Because, um, well, based on fact and from the uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's actual... Um, conversations with the FBI years later when he reflected upon his his teenage years, he shared that actual incident. So that's in public record that he once lured a dog into the woods and then he couldn't bear to do it. So that those facts are then translated into the book and um, you know, it's one of the more frightening scenes in the film because in an odd way we can look at a movie and see people getting murdered and we don't flinch but uh, a whole audience can kind of cringe at the sight that we might do something to an animal so some people might be scared but the, you know the dog is safe I've hung out with the actual dog many times <laughs> since he's a lovely um, film dog and uh, and emotionally you know the, but the film in regards to the film like the character is there's a push and pull that's kind of still going on with him at this point in his life. Like he, he has these urges to do certain things and he can't stop it, but he still, he still is able to stop it before the monstrous side of him fully takes over. Mm. So he gets, he gets really close there. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to ask you was, is he watching the doctor jog because of what you just said, because he, he wants to pull the trigger, but he can't, or is that just, part of his, who he is. I, I couldn't put my finger on that. I mean, it was beautifully done, but, you know, I, it's probably overthinking on my part. Was he contemplating making the doctor his first victim? Yeah, that's the whole, he's, he has, you know, that's, I don't want to give a spoiler, but... I'll, I'll I mean, let people fa- know that, yeah. This, this fascination with the jogger is something that the real Jeffrey Dahmer also um, shared as a private thing that no one else knew about that he would hide in the woods and wait for this jogger who routinely go past the house and so um that's just also communicated in the film that he's this odd obsession with this this young you know this young doctor and it's almost one of those early hints of his own homosexuality um taking place but he he, as you're confused by it he's also confused by it as Mm. a character he just doesn't know why he's there in the woods waiting and that's that's creepy. Yeah, and there's, you know, and these aren't really spoilers. They're kind of like t- touching upon little scenes, and I will preface the, the beginning of the podcast with this, but the other thing I wanted to say was, I know from hearing Durf in an interview, he said it wasn't him in the car at the end. It was another friend, Mike. Why was, right. it, why was it important to you as a director to show him getting into the car with, with um, I want to I word this carefully, with... Jeffrey not going through with the baseball bat, you know, with kind of just maintaining and not doing what you think he might do. Do you, do you understand? Oh, so you're, you're really laying out some of the end notes of the movie here, aren't you? You're not leaving anything. For the, so, um, you know, you know, um, when you take a book and you turn it into a, a movie, 
I, I was most loyal to trying to communicate the spirit of the book. Mm. And so many of the facts are directly related because I could, I could directly dramatize them. There's some other qualities of facts that for the sake of it being a dramatic piece of work, you have to just make creative license for the sake of making, also making something that's entertainment. And so the two main characters is the relationship between Jeff and Durf and, 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 as much as it's a portrait of a serial killer's young boy, it's also a portrait of an artist as a young boy too. He's using Jeff almost as his first muse that then will send him on his life career as an, an artist who can write and think about and draw about other people. And so having the two of them sort of in a culminating scene sit down because one of them's kind of been the alpha male in the group of friends who's then form the Dahmer fan club around Jeff, it only makes dramatic sense that they have a sort of a final culminating moment together that, that, you know, so the two characters that we've been following are also revisited at the end of the film in a very powerful moment. It allows the audience, I think, also for the entire movie to sort of flush through the brain once again as we sort of see them sort of sitting there and one one sitting, Durf sitting there with promise in his future, and we know simultaneously the Jeff in the passenger seat is about to slip towards becoming a monster. And 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 it's how these two lives can go in two separate directions. And that's you know that I think that we think about that all as high school kids, as as adults all the time. That like, God, whatever happened to that kid? And some of us do good things, and some of us kind of unfortunately might slip off because our sanity doesn't. When work. I, yeah, when I told you there was things I liked about this movie, I wasn't lying. I just felt like this was all beautifully. The way you approach this, Mark, through the scenes, I thought it was just supremely well done. Uh, let me ask you, so do you think Dahmer sincerely liked these guys? Yeah, I do. I mean, later in life, he did say when he was, you know, sitting with the FBI and had been caught that uh, the best days of his life was high school. Mm. And I think that had a lot to do with the fact that there was some camaraderie around him and that even though he may have had it's a sad story like his own personal struggles that were horrible it just, there was a community of people that you know made him their you know unfortunately sometimes their mascot but also they were called the Dahmer fan club it's a true story and he had some friends there um, he was on a tennis team and one of the other guys he was friends with at the time was a fellow tennis player and and it just, you know, it's it's a story also about friendship, right? It, it certainly is. And you know, one of the scenes that I I like a lot, and I, I don't know if this applies because I did a lot of research on Dahmer as well. Some people believe he had potentially Asperger's or or autism. You know, this and this is the last kind of scene related question I'll ask you when he just takes off at from the prom. It, it, by the way, great choice of songs uh, in that scene. Um, Thank you. Is is does he just is it just who he is, a loner saying, I'm out, see ya? Like, yeah, I mean, I think that you have to remember that someone that is this far off the edge of his sanity and he's living in, a, in, the, in, the, in the deep bowels of a psyche that no one else sort of travels to those places. He's just holding, trying to hold on to his sanity by the time he gets to the prom. So he doesn't necessarily even understand the sort of pleasantries that may go along with... Um, you know, excusing himself to the bathroom but never turning back um, and just leaving a prom and abandoning his date. 
but because he was just trying to make it to the prom and he just can't even he can't even be there so um you know it's hard for us as as well adjusted intelligent people to sometimes comprehend it immediately in that moment but it's it's what occurred and it's highly shocking but it's also a reminder of like where he and us do not look at the same experience the same way so he just tapped out yeah and let me ask you talk about the the relevance uh, and and the character of of Lloyd Fig well I'll, I'll have, you know Lloyd Fig who's the psycho stoner crazy guy in the that's a, also like around the school is a pot dealer. Mm. He is the craziest of them all in the school, right? And so as we all can look back at high school and think, oh, that guy that was really screwed up is probably going to be the, the psycho in real life. That The truth is that it could very well be someone who's invisible to the rest of us and is sort of slipping through the cracks. Mm. So he was on some level just even too crazy for Jeff at that point. And, 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 and to sort of follow Fig around in a couple scenes, you realize, wow, he's, he's not safe to be around. Mm. And it puts Jeff in a, also in a perspective, too. You realize that, you know, there are limits that he has, at least still. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, at it's, least at that point. You know, yeah. He's not, he's not fully gone yet. And this is just a, you know, a sad peer that's just a badass. Yeah, there's some, there's some, there, there are actually, well, there is one more scene I wanted to ask you about, um, and there's so many good ones, I don't want to give, but um, the, he's sitting next to his uh, a roommate, they're on a field trip, and there's two questions about the field trip I wanted to ask you, and, yeah, and, totally. and I'm sorry, I, I don't know what's in that 80% truth, I, I admittedly kind of read a little bit on, on this graphic novel, I haven't read it word for word, is the Mondale thing, is that in the 20% or 80%? I put that at 98%. Wow. He did that. He got on a payphone, called in, got in and uh, to the vice president of the United States' office and called an aide and got him and his buddies into that office and got a tour. So it's just cause, and And here's the thing is that here's a character. Well, some of us go, that's ridiculous. You don't do that. He doesn't understand those limits as a person, and he charmed his way into one of the highest, most powerful offices in the land, and he did that as a high school kid. So you're realizing that, like, his world is just his, the way he travels is, is different, or the way he thinks is, is, is without those restraints. And that's true. That's what happened. So he got in there. I was stunned. I, I thought, I said, when I talked to Mark, I'm going to tell him, you know, that was a really good scene. He improv- you know, he kind of improvised and put in there. I, I, I'm, 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 you know, stu- to be, I'm to be honest, like that was the one that's almost like the hardest to believe when it's on the page, even though it happened. <laughs> so it was the one that I almost had to, you know, fight for the most to make sure, because while we're shoot, shooting everything else in Akron, Ohio, how are we going to move everyone to DC? Like, how are we going to film something that we can't get to DC as well? So like the fact that we were able to pull that off and it worked out successfully for me, is just, I'm, I'm just grateful that made it all the way to the finish movie the way it did yeah and you know the, the, the scene that freaked me out the most is when he's with his um a root his high school like a roommate there on a field trip as i mentioned and his, his african-american roommate he basically asks him you know i wonder what your organs look like if they're the same you know tech color as mine or if they look like mine. that i don't know Do what it. it was about that scene but th- like i said you didn't have to show any killing here to get effect it was all just great storytelling talk about that Thanks. scene a little bit mark 
Well, you know, they were somewhat a little aware of um, well, who would become, at least on the most basic level, were aware of the sort of top-line facts of what he did. He was a, you know, he became a serial killer, a cannibal, a necrophiliac. He, unfortunately, he had targeted the minorities in, and while his rage was taking over, and he was a, an active serial killer in, in the 80s. Um, and so with the awareness of that in the, in the mind of the audience to it, it it's it's a, a highly creepy and sort of effective moment that when they're on this high school trip to Washington DC that he is in a hotel room his roommate that he's assigned with is the one black kid in his class so there he is in the hotel room with uh, one kid that he's and it's a way to sort of hint at and show his sort of fascination and his interest that's very specific um, to like the high school quarterback, mm. Charlie Smith. And so it, it really, it, it works and it suggests so much about where he will be go and how, uh, how dark and frightening that all is, but also how he has just this, from his point of view, like a really genuinely, He's asking a genuine question. He's like, are you are your insides the same color as my insides? And it's just so perverse. But for him, it's just what he's genuinely thinking about. And 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 that's just creepy. Yeah, it certainly is. And I, I remember hearing a story, and this isn't in the movie, where, um, you know, later on as Dahmer was in his, you know, his, I don't know what you'd call it, his heyday, he he just, he I guess one of his victims escaped who was a minority and the police end up returning him, not knowing who he was. They thought they were just two people that were dating. He, re, they, re, I don't know if you ever heard this story. They returned. Yeah, totally. Yeah, they returned the guy. The kid tried like, escaping Dahmer. The police returned him, not knowing what was going on, back to Dahmer. And Dahmer, you know, admits killing the kid a few hours later through through the right. neighbors. So that's why it freaked me out even more. Cause I, I I knew that going into it, and I was like, holy cow. Right, and that was the goal, you know, that you're sort of layering in your knowledge of who he became on top of what you're watching. Um, and that sort of is part of the conversation I'm trying to have with the audience during the whole whole movie is how you're, you're, you're feeling for this character who's trying to make friends and, and, and make conversation, but you're also aware of what he will become. Um, I mean, the sad comment on all of that is that I think Jeff had some Jeffrey at some point, the real Jeffrey, I should clarify, had had said that he specifically also targeted minorities because he felt like the police would and the community would would make less of an uproar or or not one at all upon the missing of these young men, and that's a really sad comment on on why he was doing that and you know my film is all before this that part of him yes yes but that's just a detail that just um is haunting yeah it's it's a very sad statement but it also goes to show how how really smart this serial killer was and and i don't mean you know smart doesn't always have to mean in a you know positive genius way he just knew you know he was smart yeah sort of a safer way of Feeling, yeah, smart's a compliment, but intelligent, you can sort of call even a monster intelligent. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let me t- talk to me about filming in, in his his childhood or his home. What was that like? Because I really, th- I think that adds some authenticity to the film. I think it's a really neat kind of thing. Um, what was it like being in there, shooting in there? You mentioned it earlier in the interview. Um, talk about that a little bit, Mark. Well, 
I mean, you, you said it yourself, like I just, in the pursuit of authenticity and the house is still there and exists. So I made a point once Durf, the author had taken me there during like one of my research visits where I had, uh, Durf had sort of given me a tour of the book. So I should start at the beginning. Durf had given me a tour of the book by actually taking me back to the high school that he went to and the roads that him and his buddies would drive around where they're like hangout spots, their hangout spots. And eventually one of those days that I was there in, in Cleveland and Akron, he took me to Jeffrey Dahmer's actual childhood home and it helped give me a deeper understanding of the lay of the land and how the kid lived. And I think for all of us, a childhood home has a lot to do with who he became. And so since that house was still standing there, I was you know, determined to, if possible, use it as a set for the film. And so I uh, reached out to the author. The author connected me with the owner, and I stayed in touch with him and updated him on the progress of the film until eventually we're at a point where we could you know, appropriately uh, secure it as a location for filming. And um, everybody, I think, that worked on the film was actually quite grateful. It's a, you know, it's a place of the fir his first murder. There's a there's a dark history there, but it's also a lovely piece of property um, perched in the woods on a hill, and you can sort of feel the uh, wind rustling through the leaves, and it's perched high, so sometimes it feels almost like a treehouse. But it's also a reminder that he didn't. You know, Jeff didn't, like, grow up in a cave. Like, he was a real kid who got off the school bus, walked up the driveway with a mail, dropped off his his books and didn't do his homework and went out the back door and walked through the woods. Um, and we actually even erected his hut where he kept his jars of roadkill on the actual spot, the original spot where that once stood. So we were in the pursuit of authenticity, really just trying to be honest to who the original guy was. Um, and... Uh, for all those reasons and more, it gave the actors like a, a deep sense of gravitas and the meaning of what the characters that they were portraying and, and that they were based on real people. Yeah, and I know you said you've done a ton of screenings, um, whether it's internet or, or press releases. Um, have you? How many screenings do you think you've done, or have you done any? Oh, I might have been somewhere, you know. I mean, it's been, it, it premiered in Tribeca, played in Los Angeles at okay. the Castro Theater in San Francisco, Montreal. I just came back recently from London. We played at BFI London. It played in France and Spain. Um, it played a lot of other European countries that I could not attend. And the same with a bunch of other cities around the country. It's just in Austin with it in Alabama. Um, it's been it's been phenomenal. And I feel like what's been interesting and very fortunate from my experience is to share the same movie to various often seemingly dissimilar communities and they seem to all react pretty much the same way. Yeah. You know, I, I've seen a lot of your, your press, you know, you have some press conferences. I didn't know if sometimes those always had a screening or they didn't, but I guess my question is this, when you watch your, your film, this, this wonderful film up on, you know, the screen and it's like you said earlier, I, I, you know, your, one of your assistants was kind enough to send over a copy. I, I love it. But, but I, one of the, beautiful parts of going to the cinema is that you see the audience reaction and it almost it definitely adds to the to the uniqueness of the film when you watch your own film do you ever say you know i wish i added that or i wish i hadn't taken that out do you ever doubt yourself second guess yourself um there are moments where that is occurring but by the time you're sharing it with an audience i think I've, i i felt very confident with this film that what was left in the movie of the footage was the best possible shape for the film that it was meant to be. I was, 
I was really hard on myself. My editor, Jamie Kirkpatrick, and I worked really hard to to really find the movie within the footage. Um, and we had some major realizations in the edit room that really, I think, are reflected in, in, in why it sort of it, it creates some tension and it just keeps going. Um, and so I just say no regrets. There's, there's, there's a moment before you share a movie where you just still feel like the paint is like still wet per se, but once you share it with a film and it's received well, you feel like the audience is almost like drying the paint and that at that point it's just not mine anymore. Right. Um, there's also like all these steps like after the edit room, you're in the, you're, you're designing the sound and working with the sound designer and choosing the music and getting into the mix and the color correction and, and all these other technical stages and at each point you're, you're, you're finding ways to enhance and strengthen the movie in ways that the, the previous process just, you know, didn't have the ability to to enhance. So once you get to the mix, you start to feel the whole film and all of its sound design and, 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 and add sensations to the experience that, you know, just the edit didn't have. Yeah. And you know, and not to be cheesy here, but I totally get that. I mean, that this is your baby. You've poured your heart, your time into this thing. You, this is, this is your project. Um, I mean, Robert Altman, I can't really remember the phrase exactly, but the concept was is that he viewed movies as sandcastles and that you get a bunch of mates together, you go down to the beach, you build a sandcastle, and which is kind of like a, a movie is that, and eventually the tide comes in and, and just sort of washes it away, and now it's in the consciousness of other people. So there was a point where I just started to share the movie where, you know, I was like, remind myself it's a sandcastle and now everyone else is aware of the movie that I put, poured my heart into with collaborating with so many great people but now it's you know it's in the minds and the experience of strangers and that's 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 sick that's cool yeah <laughs> I'm very grateful to have had that opportunity and I think people are going to really love this movie this movie's very special it's very telling it's storytelling at its finest it premieres in New York and LA this weekend the movie is called My Friend Dahmer the director is Mark Myers. Mark, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. This has been a joy. Thanks for the great conversation. This, um, thanks for having us on, and thanks for letting your listeners know about the movie, because I think whoever they are, they're just going to like it. Oh, Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully without, I think they will. Without question. Thanks, Mark. And that was director Mark Myers, and he does such a great job in this. You know, I, I, As you guys know, I watch a ton of movies, a ton of television. This is pretty special, and, you know, it tells a story without judgment, and all awesome filmmakers kind of have that perspective, and Mark falls right into that category, and boy, what a special, special movie, you know, and I, I would love to see a, 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 another movie kind of, that kind of examines a, another aspect of Dahmer's life. Uh, Ross Lynch is spectacular as Jeff Dahmer. You know, Dahmer did some crazy stuff, I mean... He was trying to, with, with you know, his victims, like, turn them into zombies, uh, you know, after they had passed. I'm trying to use my words carefully here. Um, it's a lot of crazy stuff. You know, he'd keep heads in the freezer. He was a cannibal. We mentioned in the interview how the police bought, brought one of the victims back, and Dahmer ends up, yeah, after the, the guy escapes Dahmer's house, the police bring him back. So there's some crazy stuff that Dahmer did after the fact. But why this movie works is, and we talked about this, is that Mark doesn't have judgment. He puts it in a place and he let he lets the facts speak for themselves. And as the movie unfolds, you, you start to slowly see why Jeff Dahmer is Jeffrey Dahmer. 
That has been episode 40. He is director, writer, Mark Myers. Thanks for listening. We'll talk soon.